Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Bereson. I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. Well, here at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds, we're dedicated to using education to help parents and caregivers prevent and respond to mental health concerns among young people. It's extremely important uh, to us to empower families to intervene early in order to prevent bigger challenges down the road. And in an effort to support even more families during this challenging time, with help from our community health center partners, we've worked really hard to translate many of our resources for Spanish-speaking families. And over the past year, we've noticed high readership on our website in Spanish on some of the following topics that, uh, that affect uh, Latinx children and teens, such as supporting kids during COVID, sleep and mental health, uh, self-care for teens, to help young people with situational anxiety, generalized anxiety and stress. So we're seeing the need for these resources uh, that makes us uh, want to think more and talk more about the different mental health challenges that have been impacting uh, Latinx fa families and communities. And to help us in this conversation, we have a special guest. Khadija, do you want to introduce our guest? Sure, I'd love to. So today we're pleased to welcome a special guest and my dear friend, Dr. Angel Caraballo. So we completed our child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship together at New York Presbyterian uh, Hospitals of Columbia and Cornell. Although Dr. Caraballo spends most of his time in private practice, he's also very active in our national organization, the Academy for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, as well as his regional branch, the New York City chapter, where he also served as past president. Dr. Caraballo has a wealth of knowledge and has worked in various settings to include, but not limited to, academia, school-based mental health services, and he's been uh, doing a lot of education of, of uh, other providers. Dr. Caraballo has particular interests and specializes in cross-cultural psychiatry, LGBTQ youth, and school issues. As a child psychiatrist, today he will be providing a Latinx perspective as we explore questions on a range of topics uh, as it relates to youth mental health concerns. I look forward to an opportunity to engage with my friend, but besides that, I really uh, am excited to learn what he has to share. Um, and I hope this will be helpful to families and youth. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so before we get started, uh, as we always do, let's have a check-in. How, how was your week this week? I think I had a week that I spent a lot of time in the cloud. So I've spent a lot of time fantasizing about the vacations I'm going to take, where I'm going to go, you know, what I'm going to do when I get there, how long will I stay? So I kind of took a little step back uh, from reality for, for a large part of this week, planning vacations in my head. <laughs> how about you, Jean? What's your week been like? Uh, I, it, it was different. It was different because I, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, as you all know, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to the news and the news has not been great. So, um, but I did take my puppy out for the first time on the trails behind my house. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and it was amazing to see how joyous she was and what it was like to be without a cell phone but not so joyous to get a number of tick bites <laughs> because they're out there. But 
you know, it, it was overall a pleasure to kind of just take a step back from uh, what's been going on in our nation. Was she too young to go out earlier? No, uh, no, I just, I just uh, have been so involved in training her in the yard. Uh, I, I, I didn't realize that there were, or remember that there were 300 acres of conservation land right behind my house. So I went back there with her and she had a ball. How about you, Anna? So, you know, unlike Khadija actually was on a vacation the week before last. <laughs> it was actually my very first vacation um, with my children in a, you know, in a long time. And it was really special. Um, and so I came back somewhat energized from having had such a wonderful time with my kids. But at the same time, there was a lot of work. Um, I think I saw the largest number of patients that I've seen in my private practice in a long, or, or ever last week. Um, and so, you know, it was a lot of work. But at the same time, like I said, I was so excited um, to have had the opportunity uh, and the blessing of being able to go somewhere that I was super excited. So where'd you go and how old are your kids? You know, it's so interesting. I actually, we went to Florida, which is not necessarily, it's a place that I've been to a tons of times. But this time there was something so magical about it. We went to Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton, and then Miami. And we were in the beach a lot. My kids are 15 and 12. Um, one of them actually had the challenge of having, her brother had a break, but um, she didn't have a break. So she actually had to do school for three days. And somehow we managed all of this and still had an amazing time. Did you get to see manatees in Boca? You see, we it, it was discussed. <laughs> and <laughs> somehow, because it was like more of a vacation, less relaxed. I was playing tennis. I had also the amazing opportunity to go to the Miami Open with a friend of mine. And they just wanted to relax. So we talked about going to the Everglades and none of that ever happened. So wow. it was a very chill vacation, mostly going that's to the beach. That sounds magical. <laughs> <laughs> so I will jump right in with my first question. Uh, so COVID-19 has taken a tremendous toll on youth and their families. Everyone has been impacted in some way or another. What have you seen over the course of this past year in your private practice? You know, one of the things that has been, that was super challenging, I think it has been, it depends on when are we talking about we're talking about at the beginning of the pandemic towards the end of the pandemic, I think things are a little bit different, right? So I think overall, the rates of anxiety have, um, I'll, I'll just put out there, the rates of anxiety are much higher. And that's the one thing that I have certainly um, found in my practice. But I also think that at the beginning of the pandemic, and so, so I guess it varies what the reasons are. I think at the beginning of the pandemic in general, class caused lots of anxiety for everyone. But I also think school has been such a huge issue for any child um, and any family, because we had to go from in-person school and transition to like full online school, which is something no one was used to. Um, and so having to deal with those challenges, challenges has been something that has come up in my practice many, many times. And the uh, parents and the children were discussing with me, you know, on a regular basis. Did, did you have to change in any way or have you had to adjust? how you practice or how you balance? Right, so it's actually um, one of the things that happened this week, yesterday, is that I actually went back to my office for the first time in over a year. 
Um, and so one of the biggest things that I had to do was switch to an all online um, platform. And so I started working from home in March of last year. Um, and like I said, until yesterday, I hadn't really, I'd only gone back to my office to pick up mail a couple of times. Um, and so that was the biggest thing that um, I had to change. But, you know, another big change that I had to make, um, <clears throat> you know, that it, it was actually a personal one. I had to um, learn how to take care of myself because when it all started, I remember working constantly, working all the time, um, involved in a million things because I wanted to be part of uh, making sure that other folks were being, uh, I was helping society in, in as many ways as I could. But then I had to figure out a way to kind of scale it back. And so to me, that was also a challenge. And and that's so, so important. I imagine you were like so many other uh, people managing work, trying to learn how to do, you know, seventh grade math and, and balancing the schooling and then also just regular household needs all at the same time, which which has been really tough for a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. Um, my kids were with me all the time. And so I actually, that was a real challenge as well, making sure that I devoted some time to them as well. So one of the things we've stressed at the Clay Center um, is, you know, uh, for parents and caregivers, and I would say for uh, doctors and healthcare professionals, is to put the life mask on yourself first and then help the person next to you, as they say on the airplanes. And we tend not to do that. And, we preach um, it all the time, though. We preach it all yeah. the time, but we tend not to do that. And um, I must say, I, I've been pretty good about um, getting into an exercise and a meditation regime during COVID, uh, which has been difficult. I mean, my kids are grown up, but I, you know, get a gazillion FaceTime and tweets from my grandchildren. But um, congratulations to you. That's really, it takes an effort, you know, and... <laughs> And I and bet I, you take and I bet you take better care of your patients and your kids. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm glad you actually mentioned the weight thing because um, I was quite overweight when the pandemic started. And actually, about six, seven months ago, I started losing weight and I started exercising more um, and becoming healthier. And so, not only do I feel healthier, but I also feel like I'm doing a much better job when I'm at work. I have a lot more energy and I'm more engaged and excited to do what I do and help the families. And so, I think the key is really just being deliberate, being deliberate about making sure you take care of yourself. It's so hard to to eat healthy when you're home all day because you can get into a, a really bad loop of just snacking all day and not snacking on the best right. thing. And the, the, being deliberate and scheduling time for yourself is 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 the key, I think, to making it work. Absolutely. So, so I'd like to transition, uh, if we may, to um, the Latinx youth. Um, and you know the youth risk youth risk behavior survey of the Center for Disease Control does uh, a survey every two years of ninth through twelfth graders, where they look at suicidal um, thoughts, uh, seriously contemplating suicide, suicide plans, uh, and suicidal behavior. And the numbers have been growing, especially in minority groups. Um, and the Latinx population is no exception. Um, in fact, the rates of depression are uh, 
have grown substantially and really fall just behind the Native American youth. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a scary thing. So, so what I'd like to ask you is, what do you think the stressors and, and protective factors, but let's start with the stressors, are specific to Latinx youth and how could they be contributing to rates of depression, suicide, anxiety, stress? What do you think? I actually think that there's an overlap between the stressors and protective factors, and we'll, we'll talk about them in a little while. But um, thinking about stressors, right, one of the main things um, is to live for most, many Latinx families are mostly Spanish-speaking. Right. So living in a country that is an English speaking country can be quite challenging for the families overall. But I think because of that, there is this burden that is put on the children to have to translate, to help you know, the families navigate society at large. And then also not being able to get some of the help that they need um, for school, right? In this situation where so many kids were actually doing online school and like, I, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of what I did was help help my children transition into that. Imagine being a you know young child you know um, of Latinx descent. Even if you're fully you know, especially if you're fully um, in, uh, bilingual, having to not only help yourself and figure it out for yourself, but also having to figure out a way to help your family, right? Which is something that happened prior to the pandemic. It's always that's always been there, but I think during this time it became even more stressful for a lot of, a lot of um, Latinx children, right, where they had to play this role, this parent role, um, and navigate things that they had never thought about it. Aside from that, you know, when we think about it from a more like socio socioeconomic perspective, you know, lack of equipment, like one of the things that I, I think we take for granted that going to school, right, there's gonna be a computer. There are a lot, lot, a lot of children who, who didn't have computers right, um, while having to go to school online, or there was only one computer for, for four or five kids. Um, then I think also living in families where, um, and this is one of the things that I think where things overlap, because this could be a good thing, but it's also a stressor. Um, so living in large, in, in a home, you know, with lots of different family members can be stressful, right? You, there's very little space, um, Who's gonna sit where to go to school, right? Um, it's 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 a huge problem, and imagine how that can make a little kid who's really trying hard to make things work and to 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 learn um, how that difficult that can be. Aside from just having to learn to be in this new system to do things online. In terms of protective factors, um, do, do we want to jump into that? Yeah, yeah, that that's that'd be great. Yeah. So in terms of protective factors, I just want to kind of say the overlap. I think that. On the other hand, lots of families, um, Latinx families, served as essential workers, um, essential employees during the pandemic, which means that lots of parents, unlike those of us who had the fortune, I mean, I cannot tell you how fortunate I believe that I am that I had a job that I was able to stay home with my kids. But many families weren't able to do that. They still had to go out and work to put food on the table. And so um, it's protective to know that grandma is home. So even though I'm having to translate for grandma, there is an adult at home that can stay with us, right? And so I think in that way that, you know, that the, the familismo becomes a protective factor. 
um, which in my experience, right, has been one of the most wonderful things about being um, Latinx myself, right? Like love having all this family around all the time. As much as I dislike it sometimes, <laughs> the majority of the time is something really special. Um, I also think that, you know, this is what I'm saying that I think both things overlap. I think that as, you know, yes, it is challenging. And I was one of those kids that was somewhat parentified, very parentified, I should say. And I think, you know, that also, you know, builds resilience, right? So on the one hand, it is challenging and anxiety provoking the fact that I'm 12 years old and I'm having to do things. I'm nine years old. I'm having to do things that other nine and 12 year olds are not worrying about. But as you get older, you also realize that that is actually something that builds character and it helps you um, be able to tolerate more stress in general. So do mental health conditions present any differently in Latinx youth? I often find that the terminology to describe what they're feeling can be different and which can lead to misdiagnoses or, or substandard care if one's not culturally competent. I mean, I think in Latinx community in general, the, the term that is used a lot to describe um, mental health conditions is ataque de nervios, um, you know, which is, and so this, that would translate into like, I had a fit of nerves and basically um, the same term is used for when referring to youth, right? Uh, parents are constantly talking about my kid is, you know, nervous. He had a nervous breakdown, right? Um, as opposed to even in language, for example, saying, you know, my kid is a warrior. My kid um, is, has been very fidgety and seems anxious, right? So you, you don't hear that quite as much. So I think it's important to be thinking in those terms when families come and start talking to you. I think, you know, physical symptoms a lot of times are actually, um, they talk a lot more about physical symptoms and going to the pediatrician is actually a lot more common than seeking any mental health treatment. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I found in my, the many years that I worked in the school-based program at Columbia was that kids many times, kids who were anxious or depressed, they tend to just with just withdraw, right? So they just kind of isolate and just it, they take it all in. So it tend to be more um, instead of being externalizers or more internalizers. Um, which what happens is those kids even receive less care because they're kind of quiet on the corner and nobody really notices them. And you know, they're a good kid, right? Because they're not causing problems. Um, so I think it's important for us to be aware of these differences as um, kids present in our practices. So one thing that, that, that always occurs to me when you're talking about Latinx is that it's not as though there's one Latinx group. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> so Absolutely. The, the difference between the Puerto Ricans and the Dominicans, and as you know, I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, do you find that there two questions. One is, do you find that the um, complaints or that the behaviors differ among different groups within the Latino community? And secondly, uh, what about the stigma of uh, mental illness within these groups? So, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Actually, you pick, you pick the two groups that are probably more similar than they think they are. Because they're actually two <laughs> islands, two <laughs> islands, one next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. Many countries, many, you know, um, influences, some countries have more indigenous influence than others, right? 
um, some more European influence than others, some more African experience, you know, influence than others. And so because of that, we are, as a group, we tend to be clumped together, but th there are a lot of differences, but it's interesting. When it comes to like what I was mentioning in terms of attack of the nervios and kind of thinking about nervousness or nervios, um, this is something that is somewhat universal, right? Like it doesn't matter what country you come from, you know, that people usually use those same terms. Why is that? Because I think the degree, the lack of the stigma is so high everywhere, right? It is so much different explaining to one to one of the families, to a family who has you know more understanding of mental health and treatment for mental health issues than it is to a you know a Latinx family. In my experience, it has been really difficult, and this is one of the reasons why then again it becomes so extremely important to be able to understand and speak their language, if you will, um, because we want to be able to engage them. So that they then make the right decisions or the decisions to get the right the care that their children need. Um, my 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 one of my brothers was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 16. Um, and that was at the time I was in college, I was a sophomore in college, and I can tell you that I had never, and interestingly, I feel like my mother was one of the most um, you know, emotionally minded people, I thought. And what I realized when this happened to my brother is that I knew nothing about myself. And I was already almost 20 years old. Um, and I think that we still see that today because the notion of mental health is very misunderstood. And what, you know, what mental health is for and how it can help us. I imagine in addition to driving the stigma, using this broad nervioso really prevents the, the youth from being able to identify their emotions and to be able to talk about it in a way, even though they're, they're fluent English speakers, it still cause, presents that barrier. And absolutely. So, you know, if you haven't heard mom talk about feeling sad or depressed, how are you going to know to say that, right? Um, if everything is an ataque de nervios, right, who, how are you going to know how to talk about it in any other way? What do you think we can do to um, to help destigmatize mental illness, uh, particularly among well uh, among among the parents I, and the caregivers, I guess, yeah. uh, and the and the grandparents, I guess that's probably the the best place to start. But you tell us, I mean, what what do we need to do from a public health standpoint, and where would be the best place to educate and to provide uh, uh, sensitive, thoughtful interventions that wouldn't help people feel so, I guess, ashamed. Right. So I, I think that it all begins in schools. Um, and of course, that's going to be my answer, right? Since I'm, <laughs> I have this passion for school-based work. Um, I, I, but I do think that this is a place where we have, you know, where, so as mental health providers, I think, it, it would be, it's our, it should be part of our, you know, our job is to help schools have more knowledge um, so that they can also help spread the knowledge through the families um, and the community at large. I mean, I think um, it, it would be wonderful if we had that um, incorporated in our training earlier on um, as, you know, more of a mandatory um, 
way of something we have to do. Um, I don't think we do that enough. Um, in my experience, some programs have amazing school-based rotations where that's incorporated. And I think you guys are probably one of those, but there are others that are not, where school-based just becomes kind of an afterthought. And so, you know, we don't learn to have these conversations with the teachers or the principals and or the families in school. Right? And I think that would be a good way to start is providing education and starting in the schools. I also think providing more education to our um, fellow um, physicians, pediatricians, uh, family doctors, right, who can also have, who should also be able to have these conversations in an open way with, you know, the families that are struggling so much with understanding what this is all about, who have lots of misconceptions of what we do as providers, right? Um, it's unreal. It's, it seems unreal how in, you know, the 21st century people are still talking about, um, well, what are you, some kind of witch doctor? Are you going to be able to read my mind? That kind of thing, right? Um, and people believe this a lot. So I think, you know, the key is education and um, we should all go, go out there and start talking to people more. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it's amazing when there's a family that comes in contact with the mental health system and figure out a way and, and, find, and understand what it is, how much they can actually... Um, communicate that to others and teach others. On the other hand, I will tell you that stigma is so powerful that I find that there are lots of families that even when they come in contact with the mental health system, what happens is they actually keep it very, you know, behind closed doors. So it's still not something that gets talked about. Why? Because, you know, the stigma is everywhere. In, in, in the African-American community, church is a, another great place to be able to educate and and talk a little bit more about mental health is does, does the church or, or places of worship um, serve a similar purpose for, for the Latinx youth and uh, teens? I mean, I would say it does. Um, I think, you know, I think priests are, you know, I think to a large degree, uh, although that statistic has changed a bit, um, for a long time, Catholicism was like the number one uh, religion all throughout Latin America. And I think now that's not quite a quite truth, quite um, quite true. I think now um, there are a lot more folks that are um, Protestant. Um, but again, the notion is that whether it's a pastor, a priest, uh, whoever it is, you know, these people have um, the ears of the community. And I think they we it ideally we would, could we would um, um, collaborate with them in helping spread the message of. Um, what we do and what mental health um, uh, can do for mental health treatment can do for for folks in terms of this um, issue and to, to combat stigma. So uh, I, I just wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit because, you know, um, we've had a major reckoning on race in in the last number of a couple of years. Um, there's nothing new under the sun in this country, uh, but you know, I'm sure the Latino youth uh, are like all of us, hooked on the media, on media coverage, on smartphones, on tablets, and um, uh, we don't want to ignore that. You can't, you can't ignore the issue of race when you turn anything on right now. So specific to these youth, how does what's going on in the border? And particularly all the anti-Latino and anti-immigrant rhetoric, 
how does that affect uh, the Latino uh, Latinx uh, youth? Uh, is, is, is it does it does it make a difference to them, and, and in what way? You know, let's let's think of it in terms of race first. I think uh, race is a really complicated issue for the Latinx community. Um, I think in this country, um, many of this is something we talk about in um, many of the committees that I work on. If you have, and, and as we were talking earlier about the like how um, we're such a diverse group within the within the Latinx community, <clears throat> someone that looks like me, and so I'm, I'm dark skin, right? For those who are listening, um, in some countries would be considered black in other countries not black right or you know every shade in between the country that i come from in particular you know in our um social security card which has identifying information you will never find that someone that looks like me is considered black we have this term called indian right which is supposed to imply that that's a race right and so with that i'm saying that is a really complicated issue um, a lot of my patients really struggle when I identify myself as black in this country um, because they're like, wait, we thought you were Latino. And I'm like, yes, but being Latino has nothing to do with race. It's an ethnicity, right? I'm Latinx, but that's an ethnicity. It's not, it's not a race. So again, identity, I think, is really complicated. And like I said, there are, you know, um, so it, it, because of that, I think issues of race um, can be looked at somewhat differently in the Latinx community, depending on who you're speaking to. And so it's something to keep in mind, that because folks are darker doesn't mean that they fully understand um, racism in the same way that folks who have darker skin understand from, you know, in this country or other countries. Makes sense. Um, and then I think, you know, everything that I think the, the, the one of the biggest impact you know, with what what's happening in the border, right? What happens in general, right? Like, you know, um, families, I think, who come to the U.S. looking for a better life, right? Um, in general, if you have to, like, something to think about, if you have to come through the border, that you must be pretty desperate, right? You must be pretty desperate to change your life. Um, and so a lot of traumatized children, right? Just from either coming to the border or coming to the US in other ways to try to improve their lives. Um, and I think that, you know, then the sentiments from others and people who come here, in my experience, are pretty much hardworking people that want to make a living and want to improve their lives, but you are being treated as though you're, you know, less than, as though you're, you know, some like subhuman. So imagine hearing all these different things and um, you know, hearing all about this, how that can make you feel when you're a child. So I think that, again, lots of difficulties with self-esteem with just identifying as Latino, period, right? Because it's not associated with a good thing. Um, then having to deal with, you know, how this affects their parents, right? Um, how like undocumented uh, children of undocumented parents, right? How they have to kind of, now is another layer of what we were talking about earlier of having to um, you know, protect or provide for families, right, as a child. So this is yet another thing that you have to worry about. I hope that answer your question. I, and, and I imagine they, they are pretty anxious about that. Um, yeah. Whether their parents are gonna be there or, or, 
or they're going to have to be pushed out. Um, right. I mean, I this is imagine. this is the big this is the big part, right, of what was happening um, in the last few years, right? People really really, really worried that their parents are going to be deported, and they, you know, and this we're talking about young kids, and you know, and then we're talking about you know kids who have been here for a long time that have are part of American society, right, and you know the dreamers, right, and they couldn't think of you know they could be deported themselves after having and have no identity in any other country but this country. But there's also the population of Latinx youth who are not uh, DACA, who are not immigrants, who were born here, who are U.S. citizens. Yes. And 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 how does it how does it affect them because they're not necessarily directly threatened but there must be um an impact on them uh having grown up and having citizenship correct i mean and i wish i could tell you from a scientific point of view what happens but i can tell you from a personal point of view again if i think and from the kids that i've worked with right so if you're hearing because it, there is this even though as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, we belong to lots of different countries. When you're Latinx, you're Latinx, right? So you're part of that group, no matter what, because there's so many things. There are things that make us different, but there are many things that we have in common. Even if you are someone, so, you know, I have really wealthy patients, right? Who speak the same language, and I'm not talking about Spanish, who speak in the same way that, you know, not so wealthy kids who have been born in the U.S. speak. It's it's something that is just gets passed on. And so there is a sense of pride on being um, Latinx, being part of this community. And if your community is being attacked in one way or another, that is going to have an impact on you. Mm -hmm. Even if you are not a kid who came through the border, right? So I can't tell you the degree of you know, anxiety and frustration that my kids had, who are not, who were not, they didn't come in that way, right? They're like first generation Americans and have been, you know, and have all the privilege, you know, so, but yet this was really caused a big impact on them as well. So Latinx youth are among the largest and fastest growing youth population in the nation. We touched on some of these um, components earlier, but just to, to, bring it all together, how will we build a culturally competent um, service, a service that is sensitive um, to, the, to the cultural needs of the kids and families? Like what would the components have to look like to be able to provide culturally competent, sensitive care to families and kids? Um, I mean, I think we have to maximize access to care, right? Um, we have to provide, um, um, language, you know, translation services that are culturally appropriate. And, you know, we have to provide better insurance coverage. Um, and, and again, I think one big thing that we can't forget is, you know, fighting stigma, right? So we have to have lots of education against stigma um, to be able to kind of get to a better playing field. Now, do, do school-based services in and of itself kind of address a little bit of the stigma? Do they feel more comfortable coming into a school to see someone like you or a therapist? I think so. I mean, it, definitely one of the things that we found 
um, while I worked in the school-based program is that um, families who wouldn't come to the clinic, we would able to we were able to see in the clinic in in the, in the schools. So there is something right about first of all um, how they view the school right the school is something that is it's part of everyone right and they you know how we all appreciate it kind of in the same way and so there was also this importance of like making sure that we do the we do what's right for our children by paying attention to what's going on in school by listening to teachers by you know attending meetings that were arranged in school so there's a whole different um it's a very different mentality than just having to go to the clinic yeah. And, and uh, before we wrap up, one thing that I'd like to emphasize, and that was um, the, the value that um, that Mass General in particular, uh, and I'm sure all around the country has in recruiting uh, uh, diverse um, healthcare providers. I mean, we've heard from our departing uh, chief medical officer, and we've heard from Joe Betancourt and from the Office of Inclusion and Diversity, how valuable it is for uh, folks of different ethnicities and races to see people who um, they can immediately identify with. Um, so I think that speaks to what you're saying. Right. Is there anything that we haven't uh, addressed that's super important to you? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I mean, a lot, a big part of our conversations, but I think we have addressed the biggest, the most important thing to me is not simply just because we're talking about it here. Fighting stigma has always been in you know in the forefront of my mind and you know if i had the if i if if i if i didn't have to work and make a living that's all i would be doing <laughs> that's great so um let's wrap up by uh, what struck us in the news this past week uh Khadija, what about you you know i think i will say similar to what i said last week you know the violence is unrelenting the 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 race issues are just unrelenting and I'm finding myself exhausted. And then you top that with, you know, another school shooting. I'm just, just exhausted and, and looking for a light at the end of the tunnel. Anything in particular stand out to you this week in the news, Gene? Um, well, ditto, but since I promised not to go political, <laughs> I will give a tribute to the, uh, the UMass men's hockey team that won the national championship for the first time ever. And having had a daughter, having a daughter that played uh, on their varsity field hockey team, they of course didn't do so well. They lost. I mean, they were in the national championships, but they were, but that team was just amazing. It was just such a joy to see, um, to see a, a really great hockey game and to see our, home state team take the championship. Well, I'm impressed by your restraint. I'm not <laughs> talking about something political. <laughs> and how about you? Um, you know, actually, I couldn't help but to think about um, what's happening um, with the vaccines, right? The, the whole notion of this plotting situation. Um, it, it, you know, it's super concerning because I think that although it is not I think I want to bring it up here because we hopefully have people that are listening and will hear that this is not as common as it seems and that we should all get vaccinated no matter what. Um, but it is concerning, right, that 
in you know many other countries, um, the, some vaccines are have been are currently not being used because of these concerns. And now, just this morning, um, I read that Johnson and Johnson is potentially going to stop. There's going to we're going to stop using Johnson and Johnson Johnson and Johnson vaccine in the U.S. So that's concerning because I think the only way we're going to get out of this is, as we know, is for more people to be vaccinated. So I'm not an expert on this one. My daughter, who's an epidemiologist, actually texted me because I knew that she got the Johnson & Johnson. And she said, I said, how are you feeling? She says, I'm really afraid. And I said, wait a second. You're an epidemiologist. There were six cases. I said five. She said six. because So she's obviously right. beating. Yeah. And like, it's, like it's seven million. Okay. I said, between women of 18 and 48, how many of those women were taking estrogen progesterone? for birth control. How many were taking other medications that may have been clot producing and are totally not correlated with this vaccine? And right. then she said, and then her answer was, good point. <laughs> but once you, once you put something out into the, to the, to that airspace, like, you know, it, 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 it hits people and they, they, they forget it. It, it feels bigger than it, than it really is. And I think that's really, what's happening like the once it's once it's said it's like it just it's like it's like a wildfire right so we have to rely on our scientists to kind of really explain to the public what what's the relationship between causation correlation and just kind of a random you know rare event um that has happened well thank you all so much and annual thank you so much for being here it's been a thank pleasure oh it's been thank awesome you. awesome uh we thank need thank you um, so, um, if any of our listeners want to write in, email in, ask more questions, hear more about this, please do so. We're going to continue translating as much as we can in Spanish. Uh, it's, uh, uh, we have a lot of folks that are very interested in that. And, um, I want to thank all of you and we hope that our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Gene Barrett. Muchas gracias.